You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today, today we have Joel Block, an exceptional guest and successful hedge, hedge fund manager, keynote speaker, Shale Wallace, Share Wallace Street Secrets, focused on raising capital for more than 35 years. Help me please to welcome the principal of Paul's Eyes Capital. Thanks so much for being with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. Adam, nice to, uh, nice to see you. How are you? Thanks. Uh, Joel, your background is super impressive as a multifamily syndicator, hedge fund manager, keynote speaker, but I would like to start with the beginning of being a real estate syndicator and fund manager. What was the beginning for you? Well, I started, uh, I started in the CPA business as an accountant, as a youngster and doing tax work for a big syndicator, you know, so I was doing tax turns for windmills. I was doing tax turns for real estate deals. And, and I hated doing the tax work. I just hated it, but I love reading the partnership agreements. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be a tax doer. I want to be a deal maker like these guys. And so I, I left Pricewaterhouse, a big accounting firm and started a little syndication firm with another guy that I had met. And the two of us together put together, uh, you know, our first deal. Uh, we raised $165,000 in, uh, in the 80s. And, and then we bought another deal and raised more money. We just kept going uh, all the way through uh, about 1990. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I got started. I mean, that, uh, you know, it, it goes on from there, but that's kind of how I got started. I kind of fell into this business. I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, get exposed to it the way some of you guys are getting exposed to it, you know, like where there, I didn't really have an expert teaching me, hmm. but I kind of learned it from the backside, you know, from the, from the technical side of the, the paperwork and the, the accounting. And then I just sort of figured a lot of it out. I wasn't born yet, even. Uh, I'm born, born 1984, so. <laughs> Boy, that, yeah. uh, that really makes me feel just great, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was different back then. I think uh, now you have podcasts, you have a lot of books. We have you uh, as, a, as a mentor, but uh, back then, I, I don't uh, imagine how it was back then on 80s and 70s to learn yeah, it was- all of this. It was quite different. It was, uh, you know, we kind of had to learn a lot of it on our own. Listen, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things I would never do now. Uh, mm. We broke every rule that there was, mm. uh, which I would never advise anyone to do. But uh, you know what? That's how you learn. And, and we lived through it. We did okay. 100%. So uh, uh, my next question is, uh, is the advantage player in uh, term? It's a unique, and I want to tie it up with the current inflated market for the apartment syndication. And my question will be about the impact of that inflation on real estate business and raising capital. So as a coach, what will be your uh, real, est- like real estate Wall Street advice to apartment syndicator now, especially with the current inflated uh, rates in different markets all over the state and Canada? Well, under- understand that... Um... You know, and I can only speak to what's happening in the United States, which I think is mirrored in Canada, but, but it's driven, a lot of it's driven by the economy of the United States because the economy is so large and our Fed is so big. And it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Um, you know, the economy had been growing for the last 10 or 15 years at a, at a really, really fast pace. And, and a lot of things were happening that 
really just caused the economy. And, and when I talk about the economy, think about a balloon that they just kept pumping air into the balloon. The balloon kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the Fed, who you know really is in charge of our monetary supply and the way that the uh, economy works, uh, they looked at this and said, look, we can't let the balloon continue to get bigger. It could pop and that would be like a, a depression. That would be a disaster. Hmm. Or we can just slowly let some air out of the balloon and just kind of slow it down a little bit. Let's, let's, it's growing too fast. The inflation is getting too much. And if the inflation gets too much and the balloon keeps getting bigger and bigger, uh, that will be a problem. So what the Fed does is they raise interest rates. And, and what the effect that it's having, it's cooling off the market. It's, it's uh, people who want to buy homes are not wanting to buy homes anymore. People that want to buy uh, you know, business assets are not buying them so much because interest rates are going higher. Things are getting, that means things are getting more expensive. And so uh, that's what the government did on purpose is exactly what's working. I mean, it works. It's working just perfectly. Hmm. So uh, here's the impact for fund, uh, syndicators and fund managers is in a really, really hot market, which it was a couple months ago, hmm. uh, it's very difficult for anyone to compete. But what I would tell you, it's if it's difficult for a fund manager or a syndicator, somebody who's looking at real estate all the time, if it's hard for us to find deals, imagine how hard it is for the people who invest with us to find deals. Yeah. So they really need us, especially in a difficult market, they need us more than ever. I mean, they need us all the time because they don't want to do all the work that's involved in putting all this stuff together, but especially in a tough market, they really need us. The second part of that is that as the market starts to slow down, now we have a real significant advantage because we've got cash, we've got ready cash, and we get what I always refer to as a readiness premium. In other words, because we're ready to go, we can buy at a faster clip. So uh, the fund managers uh, have a tremendous advantage because of that reason. And that's an advantage that regular people don't get because they don't have all their cash ready. They might have a little cash ready. They may need to borrow a lot. We can go in cash if we need to, because most of us have a lot of cash and we can go and we can do what we need to, and then we can refinance later, or we can reorganize. So there are lots of advantages that syndicators get uh, and fund managers get because we aggregate capital. That's really the main thing that we do is put deals together by aggregating capital. And so this market, which is starting to slow down, it's already slowed down a lot since just uh, uh, a couple months ago, uh, is, is a market that's going to be very advantageous for us. So it's, it's uh, slowing down, I think, on the East Coast and the West Coast also. But all of the focus, I think, on the East part, where is Alabama, um, Arizona, um, Atlanta, uh, Texas. Uh, it's a li little bit slowing down already starting from February, I think. And uh, uh, this is, as you, as you said, it's advantage point for uh, the fund manager because uh, the fund is already ready, which is bring me to the next question, which is, for you, what is more appealing for your business model, syndication or fund? Because both well, of them is, you know, yeah. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And I usually answer uh, that question back, you know, do I prefer this or this? I usually say back, uh, you know, if you play golf, do you prefer a putter or a driver? Okay. And people look at me like, you know, Joel, are you an idiot? You know, you use the tool hmm. that you need to use at the time that you need to use it. Correct. And that's how it is with a syndication and a fund. Those are just, to me, they're just financial tools. And you use the right tool at the right time. So for example, 
somebody might start a fund and they might have 20 investors in their fund. And they might define their fund as we're going to buy class B multifamily assets in a certain part of the country, whatever that is. Yeah. Well, what might happen is they might stumble across a car wash in some other place that doesn't really fit the criteria of the fund. So the fund might not buy it because the fund is defined as we're going to buy these kind of assets. Yes. But what the syndicator or the fund manager might do is it might go to three or four of the investors and say, listen, I'm thinking about doing a separate deal over in another place. Would you like to come with me? Mm-hmm. So then you might have, now you have a fund and then you might have a syndication project mm-hmm. and then you might start a different fund because now you want to do a different asset class or a different part of the country. So it's not uncommon once you catch on to how this works, how the tool works, that you build multiple tools and you do different things and that allows you to buy more property and to do more deals. I think my main question here also is, when is in your career was that an actual motivation to open a fund? Because you have more flexibility, but it's harder to um, convince uh, a credit investor to be up in board with you in any investment. That's, so, that's true. So one, when I was in your career, it was like, this is a point where I actually can pull the trigger and have it a fund because it's easier for you than syndicator where you have to every time to choose a deal, choose a track of record and so on. It's, it's a little easier to raise money for a syndication because if the investors want to go look at the building, they can. Hmm. Uh, they can drive there. They can knock on the walls, knock on the doors, hit the windows and say, you know what? I like this deal. Uh, the truth is that most investors really don't know what they're looking at. They don't really understand what the value add is hmm. to a deal. But a lot of times people just like to do that just because that's what they do. A fund, people have to trust you a little more because they're giving you discretion about what you buy, what you do. You know, it's really up to you and you're not going to ask them their opinion. So they're going to give you their money blind and then you're going to place the money based on the parameters of the fund. So you said, we're going to buy class B multifamily assets in the Northeastern part of the United States. That's what they expect you're going to do, but they don't get to pick the building. But a fund is better because number one, you're not raising money all the time. Number two, mm-hmm. uh, you get that readiness premium because the money's ready. You don't have to go hunting for the money when you find your deal. Yeah. So you're not always in fundraising mode. You know, you're recycling the money, which is yeah. uh, desirable for some people. I mean, if you've got access to a lot of deal flow, a fund is the way to go because you've got your money ready and you can always do that. If you don't have a lot of deal flow, uh, then a fund would not be good. So for me, uh, you know, when I had enough track record that I had done enough deals that I could tell people, hey, listen, I know what I'm doing. I've been around the block before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I felt comfortable to ask to uh, to build a fund. 100%. Uh, going back to, not going back, starting from raising capital, uh, how you created an investor-friendly deal to make it appealing to your investor? Because this is the first part of raising capital is to make the deal is investor-friendly. Yeah, well, the, the deal has to be good. In other words, the deal has to make sense. It has to be profitable. But then the terms of the deal, the structure of the deal is what has to be investor friendly. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of times uh, deals get put together uh, and then and it's usually the fault of the attorney because they advocate for the client so much that they give them advice that isn't necessarily great advice. They, they mean well, mm-hmm. but they don't always do what's uh, really good. Um, And so what they might do is they might say, you know, uh, let's give a lower preferred 
let's let's restrict people's ability to transfer shares. Mm-hmm. Like for example, I don't want people to transfer shares to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if grandma and grandpa want to give shares to their grandchildren mm-hmm. as part of their estate planning process, yeah. uh, we're not going to stop that. That's something that we would automatically allow people to do because that's investor friendly. Now, allowing uh, an investor to sell shares to uh, Mr. Smith down the street uh, without your permission, that would not be okay because, uh, you know, your investor group becomes kind of like a family and you want to pick the people who are in your investor group and you don't want some uh, rude, cantankerous, uh, you know, honorary type guy that is going to cause a lot of problems uh, if you can help it, you know, so you want to kind of be able to control who the investors are as best you can to make sure that you've got groups of people that you like, because you're going to be working with these people. I I tell investors, we're going to be on the same team for a long time. Hmm. And, you know, and so we need to get to know each other. We need to like each other. We need to understand each other. Uh, And even when that happens, it doesn't always go perfect, but at least you've got a better chance of it going right uh, than, uh, than if a stranger comes in. So 100%. those are those are some examples of investor friendly terms is, mm. you know, how you pay the investors, how the investors get their money back, you know, what happens. Uh, and investor friendly doesn't mean that you're giving the store away. You know, for example, uh, we have a we have an early withdrawal penalty built into our deals. In other words, mm. if people take their money out before three years, uh, they have to pay a penalty. Mm. And the reason for that is and everybody understands this, that it costs money to raise money. You got to pay the attorneys. You might have to pay other people. So it costs money to raise money. And if people take their money out in six months, then the deal loses money on those investors. Hmm. And the investors have made a long-term commitment. So, uh, you know, to me, it's sometimes investor friendly means you got to protect all the investors from one investor who just acts badly. Hmm. And so there, there are a lot of functions, but you got to do your best to, to be investor friendly. 100%. So going to presenting the deal to the investors uh, and the part of the investor-friendly deal, how you present your structure, including the profit split, the hurdles and waterfalls structure, including the rate of return to your investors? And what was the reasoning to get rejections uh, back, back then when you started during raising capital? Well, number one, I, I think that if uh, if you start going into the hurdles, the waterfalls, the this, that, your investors are going to walk away because mm-hmm. most investors are not really interested in hearing that kind of fancy jargon language. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the words. Uh, you know, let's say it's a doctor. I mean, we're not talking about because they're not intelligent enough. Of course, they're intelligent enough. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just like we don't understand medical words, they don't necessarily understand hedge fund words. And there's a whole vocabulary in our business. And we have to really, one of the things that we can do to be successful as investors is to make sure that we're not using jargon in our sales pitches and in in our discussions with investors, unless they ask us. Mm -hmm. Because when you say to somebody, uh, you know, so the hurdle and the waterfall is like this, if somebody doesn't know what that means, they might be too embarrassed to ask. And if they're too embarrassed to ask, uh, they're probably not going to move forward with you because they don't really understand something about what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I I personally stay away from that. And what I usually tell people is, look, here's how it works in our deal. You're going to get 8% of your capital balance or 
60% of the profit, whichever is more. That, that's, that's how our deals are kind of set up. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of math behind that. There's a lot of formulas that make it all work. But at the highest level, they're probably going to get 8% or 60% of the profit, whichever is more. Yeah. And I make it very, very simple. And by making it simple, they go, yeah, that, well, that sounds like a really good deal. So, you know, if everything goes well, the least I'll get is 8% and I could get more. And I go, that's exactly how it works. Now, things might not always go perfect and you get less yeah. and they understand that that's the risk. But if everything goes well, they'll get 8% or more. And, and they're going, you know what? That's better than I get in the stock market. It's better than I get at the bank. Uh, I want to have some exposure to real estate anyway. Uh, I think you're a pretty good operator. I think that the work you've done in the past has been really good. I like you and I'll move forward. And that's that's how this business works. But this is going back to the part that we cannot guarantee an actual return. And this is has been right. part of the actual discussion from the beginning that this is the best case scenario until something getting ugly uh, for maintenance well, or anything. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it a best case scenario. I would call it you, you make your best effort yes. yeah. to make it work out. Uh, but there could be a lot of reasons. And for the people who are thinking about putting deals together, uh, the reason that you build a private placement mm-hmm. is because the private placement document discloses all of the things that you can think of that can go wrong. Now, it's possible something you didn't think of could, could go wrong, like a pandemic. No one ever thought of that. But uh, we do now. You know, cybercrime, we, we think of that now. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there are things that we didn't think of five years ago, but now they're part of the list. Yeah. And so as over time, the list gets bigger and bigger, and maybe there's 40 or 50 things. For example, uh, interest rates could change. Tax rates could change. The government could change some rules. Yeah. Uh, a meteor could fall out of the sky. You know, some <laughs> right. of that space debris that's floating up there, you know, from all those rockets and satellites uh, could fall out of the sky and land on our building and maybe it wouldn't be properly insured. Yeah. I, I, you, you know what I'm saying? Maybe there could be a weather event that would be terrible. I, there are many things and we try to put as many of those things in there because what you want to avoid is you don't want the investor to say, well, gee, if I would have known that, I would not have invested. So, uh, you know, you got to make an investor friendly. Like we said before, you want to try to explain the terms in a simple way. And, uh, and, and you have to get them to know that it's not a guaranteed deal. People know it's not a guaranteed deal, partly because they read the disclosures in the private placement, but also they just know that except for the bank, which is a, a half percent or less, uh, nothing is guaranteed. Just nothing in this world is guaranteed. And, you know, part of the reason that that we like to deal with accredited investors more than non-accredited is because accredited investors tend to understand this a little better than other people. They just understand they don't want to lose, but sometimes losses happen. And if they lose, uh, they certainly don't want to lose because they were cheated or money got stolen. If they lose, there are reasons why that happens. Markets collapse. Listen, the stock market's down 20%. That's a bummer. I mean, somebody's losing money. Yeah. You know, a lot of money's getting lost, but uh, it's no one's fault per se. Yeah. It just it just happened. Yeah. And, and so we try to document these things in the private placement materials. And that's the reason that syndicators and fund managers use these documents is because something will go wrong. 100% of the time, things go wrong. They just do. Yeah. And not only uh, not only do things go wrong that you want to protect against, 
but you might want to take some compensation. Well, if you're going to take compensation from your own deal, in other words, where you own the deal and you're getting paid by the deal, then you have to tell the investors in advance, hey, look, I'm going to be getting paid by our deal. And I just want you to know there's going to be some self-dealing here. So, you know, just so we're all clear about it, here's, here's what I'm going to be taking as compensation to myself. And if the investors approve it, then you're good to go. And so there are lots of reasons why you want to build these kinds of documents so that investors can't uh, come along and say, hey, you're, you're taking money out of the deal that we didn't approve, because uh, that would be a pretty terrible thing to have happen. 100%. I think... Uh, uh... Because you open the PPM or the private placement uh, memorandum part uh, for our Canadian friends, especially I'm, com- I'm from Canada, uh, how you structure the deal when you have a foreigner investors, especially like us as a, a Canadian, we um, uh, as aliens for the US uh, market. So how you structure the deal with foreign investor, especially well, on the PPM? So uh, I can only uh, comment on the way it works in the United States. Yeah. And I'm not an attorney. So I can't give legal advice. I can't give you all the details about how where I'm a CPA, but I'm not an attorney. Um, The way that it works is that uh, there is an exemption for foreign investors. So let's say you're doing your syndication in the United States and you have foreign investors. Uh, There's a regulation S allows for foreign investment dollars to come into the United States. Now, uh, we have to make sure that the money's clean that comes in the United States. In other words, it's not coming from terrorists. It's not being money laundered. And so typically, uh, you know, banks uh, help with that. Broker dealers help to make sure the money's clean. But money can absolutely come from Canada into the United States. I don't know exactly how it works in reverse. Uh, you no, know, our focus on, on bringing money to U.S., not the virus. Okay, perfect. The market in U.S. is better. focus on... So let's focus on the U.S. rules. Yeah, we have we have Reg S. Money comes regularly from the Middle East. It comes from Asia. Yeah, and it comes under Reg S. And what the government says is, look, to avoid money laundering, uh, the money has to stay in place for a year. Hmm. So they make the investment, and you can't transfer the share for a year. Hmm. And that that just is to protect against money laundering. Hmm. But the syndicator and the fund manager have a little responsibility too to make sure that the money coming in is clean. So you want to make sure that you don't take a suitcase full of cash. Oh. You want to make sure it comes through a financial institution, uh, you know, that where a wire comes in and the bank approves the wire. And, you know, you might even put a, a broker dealer in that transaction because broker <clears throat> broker dealers are trained <clears throat> to uh, verify the validity of the money. Even CPAs don't do that. I mean, lawyers don't do it. CPAs don't do it. That's what broker dealers do is they, uh, they comply with the uh, federal uh, Patriot Act rules, which which protect against uh, foreign money coming in. That's that's bad money. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, based on this, for the marketing, for the deals, especially when you're dealing, as you mentioned, accredited and non-accredited, and it's how easier to deal with accredited. So my question will be your marketing strategy to deal and comply with 506B and 506C for the marketing, especially it's different approach. And again, uh, as you mentioned, this is more about security laws and you have to uh, consult your uh, security lawyer about this, but like uh, high level of your marketing strategy for accredited and non-accredited investor to comply with five. 
506B and 506C? Well, uh, first of all, um, the compliance part, the attorney kind of lays out the guidelines about what happens. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I do a symposium uh, that teaches people how this works. Uh, if we help somebody build a fund or a syndication, we help them understand how this works. We get them up to speed on this. And then there are some guidelines about how they can uh, market for their investors. Yeah. So under 506B, you cannot advertise. So this is kind of the old fashioned way. And, you know, you're networking. You basically, uh, you know, are kind of using your track record. Uh, 506C does allow you to advertise, yeah. but it does not allow you to have non-accredited investors. So if you have uh, non-accredited, some of these the smaller investors, you might want to pull them in first, close that round, and then start a 506C round for larger investors that you advertise for. Mm -hmm. One thing I would tell you, though, uh, everybody's excited about advertising, but most people know so little about advertising, and they are so ineffective at using the internet to advertise that it doesn't go as, as planned. It doesn't always uh, work out the way you think. So I would just tell you, uh, be very careful if you're going to do this, that you, uh, that you really know what you're doing and you get some guidance on how to use the internet to attract investors. Um, the real trick to this is to not so much to sell your deal. And you can do this under 506B as well if you're careful. Um, you know, you say, listen, I like to talk about real estate. I'm looking to create a group of real estate uh, people and, you know, if you want to kind of talk real estate with me, get on my list and we'll talk about real estate. Mm. And you create a relationship with those people over time, you know, so now, uh, you know, you've, you've kind of, you've kind of gone to strangers and they're joining your list, yeah. but you haven't offered to sell them anything. And, you know, then over the next couple of months, couple, I don't know, whatever period of time, you're dripping on them. You're giving them content. You're telling them, hey, listen, I really know what I'm doing. And here's an example of something I worked on. And here's something else I did. And oh, look at this. Now we're going to be, uh, you know, putting a deal together. If you're interested in talking about getting involved in our deal, uh, you know, put yourself on my calendar or however you talk to them. Uh, so there are some ways hmm. that you can use the old 506B rules. Um, and, you know, you really want to build yourself a list. You really want to talk to people about, uh, you know, you want to get to know people because in general, you, you want to work with people that you know, if you can. And, and that's kind of, that's my preference rather than advertising for strangers under 506C. 100%. So because you're creating basically a track of record of having a relationship with an investor to claim that this is going to be, an, this is an actual existing relationship so you can yeah. go with 506B. And it's, it's not only to be compliant with the securities rules, although you are being compliant, I, I think it's better to have some connection to the people. Yeah. I, I just personally think it's better to have some amount of relationship with these people. 100%, 100%. To have this kind of connection that, uh, yeah, I, I understand this, to be honest, yeah. Uh, the whole business is based on relationship, to be honest. The whole yes. concept is based on trust. As you mentioned, That's right. more you That's are right. sophisticated, how you start a business and, and fund is to have more trust and get more trust from the people to start a fund. And, and uh, what's interesting is that uh, wealthier people tend to prefer funds also. Just, you know, you would ask the question about syndication and fund. Yeah. But wealthier people, uh, 
you know, let's, I'm talking about really not, not the difference between 50 and a hundred thousand, but the difference say between a hundred thousand and 500,000 at some point people say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy mm. and Adam, I really trust you. So here's 500 grand. Just make sure I get my monthly or my quarterly payments mm. and, and, and I'm going to go play golf and do whatever things I do or work or whatever they do. Yeah. Uh, they don't want you calling them every six months for, for more money they, you know, where, where they're, they're, they, they, those kind of people really do kind of prefer a set it and forget it model, which is what the fund is. Yeah. A syndication, a lot of times earlier stage people, I'm not saying that you know wealthy people don't do syndications too, of course they do. But uh, certainly from a preference point of view, my experience is that um, earlier stage people like the project, like they put their toe in the water and they see how it goes. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's sort of another difference between a syndication and a fund. Yeah, 100%. I think my next question will be uh, the GP part or the operational part. Uh, in which uh, kind of uh, step you think is too much of GPs or co-GPs? Because I see right now it's a, a new approach that you can find or bring a lot of GPs. Every one of them can raise money so you can close bigger deals. But in your experience, where is too many investors or GPs can be on the same deal successfully well, without an actual? Let me let me, let me tell you. Um, in our world, somebody has to be in charge. Correct. There's always a CEO of a company. Yeah. There's 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 always a team captain. There's always a team manager. Somebody has to be in charge. If something goes wrong, they have the absolute power to pull the trigger and solve the problem. So uh, my experience that uh, many of these people are called co-GPs, but the yeah. truth is uh, they're really raising funds and then they get a piece of the action for doing that, but they don't really have decision-making power uh, because they didn't bring the lion's share of the money in or whatever the reason is. Yeah. So uh, that's my experience. I mean, that doesn't mean it's 100% of the time that way. Uh, it's, it's not to say that two different companies can't get together and do a joint venture, which they can. But a lot of times these co-GP deals are, are really, they're really fundraisers that get kind of called a different name. Uh, I think some people doing this to have a track of record to use uh, the actual experience uh, of the main GP or the, as you said, the CEO of the deal to put it on their record to make it helpful for the next deal. So is he using this as a, as a function to take advantage of the experience of the actual GP? Well, let, let's put it like this. Um, if they really were honest in describing what their role was in the deal, hmm. it may not be that helpful in the track record after all. Okay. So if you're going to use it in the track record, I would urge you to be honest about telling people what you did. If you said I was a co-GP, that sort of sounds like you were involved in every single thing that happened. Yeah. But the truth is, if all you did was raise money and then get some, uh, get some referral fees or dividend checks... Uh, that's not exactly the same as operating, you know, a project for five years and building uh, yep. many houses or building a structure or whatever you tell people you're going to do. Hmm. So uh, here's the thing. These documents that the, the private placement, like, like every contract in the world, they only exist for something when they go wrong. If everything went great, you wouldn't need it. You wouldn't need a contract. 
Hmm. But things do go wrong. So you have these contracts that, that describe what's supposed to happen. Hmm. Well, if you go around telling everybody that you were a co-GP and you had a lot less responsibility uh, than you really said you did, hmm. and then you end up with some problem and the lawyers get involved and they start poking around, well, what exactly did you do as the GP? And then they, of course, interview the real uh, general partner and hmm. they say, what exactly did this person do? Did this person... Uh, were they like involved 50-50 with all? Because it sounds like they were 50-50. They made it sound like they were running the deal. Hmm. Uh, no, not exactly. Uh, I, I never met with them in five years. In fact, I've never met them face-to-face. -face. Uh, they, they brought in some money and I just gave them this title uh, because that's what we call people. Hmm. Uh, if, if it gets determined that you've been pulling on somebody's leg or stretch the truth, uh, that that's not a good thing. Okay. Okay. I got it. So uh, I think uh, my final question will be about uh, your latest event, which is syndication and hedge fund symposium event uh, this year. Uh, can you tell us about the event and the actual uh, agenda of the actual event? I think it's uh, every year, I think. We, we, we do it. We do it annually. We just recently did it at the, for the first week of May this year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a small event. We had 50 people there. I mean, these are all sophisticated people. These are the kind of people who would, for example, be listening to this show that uh, they've done real estate deals and now they're ready to do them in a structured uh, environment. And it's kind of a class. I mean, I teach people exactly how this works. I teach them what the formula should be. The attorney comes in and teaches, teaches us, uh, you know, what the securities rules are. And, and we talk about raising capital and we do some role playing. In other words, people get up in front of the audience and they pitch their deal and we practice and we give them coaching on, on what a better way to do that would be than other ways. And, and then, you know, out of that event, people learn enough where they say, you know what, I would like to build my own fund. I'd like to do my own structure. And we offer them the opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, and your listeners, for example, we're doing a, a we're doing a thing where, we're not building out the whole fund because we don't know if people want to do it in Canada or the United States and what rules are going to use and they're different. But the first part of building out the structure is, is really doing the marketing material, getting crystal clear on what it is you're going to build, the, the, the structure of the fund, how you're going to do it, uh, you know, really what the rules are and, and different things. And so we're, we've just broken out the first part. And then if they want to go on to the next part, uh, everything, all the work that they did carries forward, all the money they paid carries forward and everything that goes forward. So it's a really smooth way of making that happen. And uh, and anybody who wants to participate in doing that, uh, we're going to be doing that starting in June. Uh, this year also? Yeah, we're, that's going to be a program. That That's that's something that we're going to be doing uh, really for the, the people that came to the program that, uh, that I was at with you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to offer them a, uh, a program for uh, for making that happen. I think this year was in Vegas. The, the event was in well, the Vegas. Symposium, the symposium yeah. was in Las Vegas. Yeah. But the thing for uh, the follow-up with Seth's deal, yeah. uh, with the multifamily event where we met each other. Yeah, Toronto. Uh, that'll, that'll, be in, uh, that'll be in June, July, and August. We're going to have Zoom sessions where I'm going to do some teaching. Hmm. And then we'll get together for, uh, for a two-day program where people will really be building out the, the beginning part of their fund or their structure. And that will be uh, really helpful for them. Uh, my final question will be, uh, what is your favorite and initials box on, on fund? Because uh, I think, you, as you mentioned, you started in the 80s and 90s. And for me, it was uh, the greatest book on this time was Barbarians on, at the Gates uh, for uh, 
creating a fund and a story of uh, of fund managers. But back then, what was your uh, initial book who just grabbed your attention to understand that, okay, this is missing from my uh, plan. I need to do one, two, three. And it was really helpful in your career. Well, you know, you know, I, I went from uh, from doing uh, we had done eight syndications, okay. and then I fell into a venture capital transaction yeah. where I raised ten million dollars and and built a publishing company, which I ended up selling to a big company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've I've just been involved in a lot of different kind of deals, mm-hmm. and and at some point when the market got really, uh, really bad in the uh, in the late two thousand seven eight nine. It, it just made a lot of sense to me that we need to put together a pool of money so we can act fast. Yeah. And we just needed a tool that would allow that to happen. And that's, that's why we put together the fund. And uh, that's, that's sort of where it all came from. Okay. So, you know, it's uh, you just, you got to look at the environment and you got to, you got to respond to the environment and think, how can I take advantage of this? How can I be an advantage player? When an advantage player looks forward, they calculate the odds, they assess the situation. And what's my assessment? My assessment was a pool of capital will be very powerful uh, during that period of time because it will allow us to act fast. And it, and it did. Uh, again, uh, my last question really is how the people can follow your success and uh, where we can uh, contact you on social media? Well, you know what? The best thing uh, to do uh, I think all my contact information is uh, at joelblock.com, J-O-E-L-B-L-O-C-K.com. Uh, they can go to that website. Uh, everything about me is there. And, uh, and if they want to reach out to me, make an appointment, talk to me, whatever it is, I'm happy to talk to them. Thanks so much for doing this to us. And uh, we're really happy to, for, 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 uh, for you to accept that invite. And we're looking to bring you again to the show. Well, good. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you a lot.